as I mentioned, I would encourage you to open your Bibles to Joshua chapter 24, as we'll be coming very close to the end here in our time together this morning. And as you're turning there, uh, there's something that I want you to consider. In sports, and I know many of you are sports families, uh, individuals out there, there are a few, th- or there are a few things that predict success so much as what's known as follow-through. If you've played many sports, this is as close to a truism as you can find in sports. But if you're unfamiliar, follow-through is the part of the stroke, the part of the swing, where you follow through after striking the ball or releasing the ball. So in basketball, it's the flip of the wrist at the end of the motion. In golf, it's the swing as it continues after it's struck the ball. In baseball, in any number of things. And it dictates much of what is deemed successful in sports. Let me give you some examples. In baseball pitching, the release, the follow-through, is what dictates where the ball ends up and the type of pitch being delivered, a slider or a curveball or a number of things. In basketball, the follow-through dictates the arc of the shot, the rotation of the ball, and increases the likelihood, if done well, of the ball going in. In volleyball, as many of you are sure excited for this afternoon's game, the strength and position of the shot during the swing is dictated by the follow-through. Or maybe you're familiar with golf, where the length of the shot and the curve, either the, you know, the, the, for somebody, somebody give me this, I, I always, I always, always, always have it curve the wrong direction. You know what I mean? What are those terms? Slice, that's it. I have a terrible slice. But maybe some of you have a hook. But that is all dictated by the follow through. It's even critical in bowling, if bowling is more your speed when it comes to sports, as you release the ball down the aisle. The follow-through, in many ways, predicts the success that you will experience in these sporting activities. But I wonder how often you've paused to consider your spiritual follow-through. If you've ever paused to consider whether you're following through, whether your completion of your obedience is as consistent as the way you start in your obedience... While we know this is true in our spiritual lives, I fear that many of us don't take time to really consider this aspect of our walks, particularly following a message like last week's message that focused on obedience and addressing the idols in our lives. We hear sermons on obedience, so we develop strategies for obedience. We talk about obedience, we read books about obedience, but we never quite get around to actually obeying. The follow-through is lacking. And then we're shocked when years later we find that we are still struggling with the same idols in the same areas in our lives. Or at least I do. Maybe I'm preaching to the choir here this morning. But I think it might be an encouragement to you to find out that we're not alone in this struggle. In fact, I think Joshua realizes that Israel struggles from the exact same thing And so, following up his first speech last week in Joshua 23, he follows it up with another speech stressing obedience in Joshua 24. Here he exhorts the people of Israel and us today to stop stop simply planning to obey and choose obedience today. Many of you likely have one of these verses on your wall at home, choose this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I want to focus on the realities of obedience as we walk through Joshua 24, but first I want to ask for God's guidance in our time together. Would you pray with me? 
Father, what an incredible season of the year to pause and to consider what it means to live a faithful life for you. What an example Christ was as he came to earth and died on our behalf, was raised again three days later and returned back to heaven. And we praise him this morning. Father, I ask that our worship would continue in our time in your word. Lord, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, that your spirit would be active in our hearts and our minds, that you would reveal the truth of your word to us and that you would use it to shape and to mold our hearts as you've promised that your word never returns void. So we ask that you would fulfill that promise here this morning, that you would use your word in the lives and the hearts of those that are here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you'll recall that these last three chapters of the book of Joshua have been dealing with the faithfulness of Israel now that they are in the promised land. Right? He's been addressing what obedience in God's land, in God's promised land, should look like for Israel. Then last week, we addressed that first of his two final speeches. God reminds them that obedience should be motivated both by God's past faithfulness and also the promise of his future faithfulness. This week, he doubles down on those themes, but he stresses that obedience is a choice that should begin today. And in chapter 24, we have this second final speech, the closing final words of Joshua, this enormous figure on the landscape of Israel's history. And again, the author describes what's going on first in verse 1. Look at Joshua 24, verse 1. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel. And they presented themselves before God. Again, he summons all of Israel, all of the people, back to this familiar place of Shechem in between the mounts of Ebal and Gerizim, where they established the first covenant after they entered the land in Joshua chapter 8. You'll probably recall these familiar realities. And I love the way he primes this conversation. Look at the end of verse 1. He says, and they presented themselves before God. It's vivid imagery. He calls them to listen to what God has to say. And all of Israel stands arrayed, anticipating what God would have to say to them. Presenting themselves as available for obedience and following the Lord. And that's precisely what we're doing here this morning now, are we not? We are presenting ourselves here before the Lord saying, God, what would you have us do in light of your word today? Well, are you ready? <laughs> Buckle up, because this isn't an easy text to deal with. Because as I mentioned, this second speech of Joshua focuses thoroughly on application. He follows through and he calls us to spiritually destroy the idols that are present in our lives. Those idols, those spiritual issues that have continued to plague us that he called out last week in chapter 23. And here, I think in this text in Joshua 24, he gives us three keys to smashing idols in our lives today. Key number one, we smash idols in our lives by remembering we are saved from wasted worship. Remembering that we are saved from wasted worship. We see this starting in verse 2. Look at this. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. He defines for Israel what their history was, what their past condition. Their father Abraham wasn't always a man who was seeking the Lord. Instead, he was engaged in false worship. He was engaged in pagan idolatry in Haran, just like every other people of the earth. And yet, God moves to call him out of that condition. 
He calls them to remember, even Abraham used to worship false gods. But God intervened. We see this, that he details all of Israel's history in verse 3 through 13. He says, God intervened in the lives of Abraham and in the lives of your forefathers. And he goes to walk through how he intervened, how God was active in the lives of these patriarchs of Israel. Now, what you'll notice in verses 3 through 13 is God's role is clearly stressed here. What you find in these verses is 20 different verbs that God claims. You will notice again and again, God say, I did this, I gave that, I involved myself in this. And he addresses these in three big eras of Israel's history. He addresses the patriarchs, then he addresses the exodus, and lastly, he addresses the conquest that they've just gone through. We'll walk through these, and I want us to note God's role here. Starting in verse 3, he talks about the patriarchs. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. Did you notice the emphasis here? He recalls some of Israel's history. He parallels this with Genesis chapter 12 through chapter 50. He's recalling the history of the Pentateuch. And did you notice the actions God takes here? He says, I took Abraham out of his pagan idolatry. I led Abraham to this promised land, the land of Canaan. I made Abraham fruitful. Remember, Sarah couldn't have any children. And he says, I stepped into that situation. I worked that. I gave Abraham Isaac. I gave Isaac Jacob and Esau. I gave Esau this land of Seir. But Jacob went down to Egypt. It's very clear that he's stressing his role in the history of Israel. In short, God is saying to these people, I called Abraham and I made you a people. You need to remember that I was active in your history. You haven't always worshipped the true God. Instead, you used to worship pagan gods. He goes from the patriarchs to the exodus. Look at verse 5. And I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it. And afterwards, I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea. And the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. And you lived in the wilderness a long time. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites, who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you, and I gave them into your hand. And you took possession of the land, and I destroyed them from before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel. And he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. And I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you. So I delivered you out of his hand. This section, verses 5 through 10, parallels Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy in the Old Testament. And did you pick up on the 11 actions of God here? The 11 verbs that God claims responsibility for. He said, I was the one that sent Moses and Aaron. You didn't raise up your own deliverers. I sent them to rescue you. And then I plagued Egypt. I was the one that brought the 10 plagues down on Egypt's head to cause them to want to release you. Then I brought you out of Egypt. He notes that in verse 5 and 6. He says twice, I brought you out of Egypt. I delivered you. He said, when the Egyptians chased you, I was the one that put darkness between you and them. 
I was the one that made the sea fall back in on them and destroy their army so that you were saved. And then I brought you to the land of the Amorites on the east side of the Jordan River, and I gave them to you, and I destroyed them. And then I love that he notes Balaam's involvement. If you're familiar with that story in the book of Numbers, it's fascinating. He says, Balaam comes to try and curse you, and I chose not to listen to Balaam. And so I delivered you out of his hand. He looks back at this period of the Exodus as God rescues his people out of Egypt. And he says, I was the one that rescued you. I was the one that preserved you in the desert when you were threatened to be destroyed by other nations. So he says, I was the one that called Abraham and your family. I was the one who rescued and preserved you in the desert. And lastly, I was the one that worked the conquest. Look at verse 11 through 13. And this is the most familiar to us because this is what we just have been studying. Verse 11. And you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho. And the leaders of Jericho fought against you, and also the Amorites and the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And I gave them into your hand. And I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored, and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. Again, here in these three verses, he describes what's taken place in the entire book of Joshua up to this point. He says, I was the one that gave these seven nations into your hand, that mouthful that you find in verse 11. Those were the seven nations that I promised to defeat, and I did that. He says, and then I sent the hornet, which is kind of an interesting expression. It's an expression of terror and fear. He said, I went before you to send fear and terror on these people. It's actually the fulfillment of promises made in both Exodus 23, verse 28. You want to drop that in your Bibles and Deuteronomy 7, verse 20, where God promises to send a hornet before his people to cause fear and terror in the enemies. He says, I gave you the enemies and I sent this hornet before you. And then lastly, I gave you this land, verse 13. I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities that you had not built. Pointing this, in addition to calling out your forefathers, in addition to rescuing you and redeeming you, I have blessed you abundantly in this land. He gives them their entire history in just a few short verses. And there are at least four things that I think are explicit from this text that are worth us noting. God sovereignly calls his people. God miraculously rescues his people. God faithfully preserves his people. And lastly, God abundantly blesses his people. Now, does this sound familiar to you at all? I was reading through this description, and I couldn't help but think of Romans chapter 8. Turn to the right in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, one of probably your favorite passages. This is one that people get a little bit hung up on, but I can't help but note the similarity between what Joshua says in Joshua 24 and what we read in Paul's description in Romans chapter 8 of God rescuing and redeeming and calling and ultimately blessing. Romans 8, verse 30 says this, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. God is consistently faithful to those of us that are not. God redeems us out of a fallen condition, wasting our lives and worshiping all the gods of this world. And he miraculously rescues us. He faithfully preserves us. And he ultimately promises to bless us. 
one day in heaven, though we don't deserve it. Through all of this, God describes to the people how he saves his people from wasted worship. Have you ever thought about that? How God rescues people from wasting their lives worshiping gods that aren't really gods. Think about it. In Haran, Abraham was wasting every day of his life worshiping gods that were never going to hear him. In Egypt, the Israelites were wasting their lives serving the false gods of Egypt. And then he commands them to eliminate the Canaanites precisely to save them from wasting their lives worshiping those gods in Canaan. God consistently again and again and again saves a people from wasting their lives worshiping false gods. And God is still engaged in that saving project today. Because if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, God has saved you from wasting your life worshiping things that aren't real gods. Remember what we talked about last week? I don't know what gods you used to worship in your life before Christ. I don't know what you were engaged in and what your life was spent on. Maybe you believed in another god or were engaged in another religion. Maybe you believed in no god and you were your own god. Maybe you lived life for self-fulfillment and for the gratification of whatever desire you had. And God reached into that situation and he pulled you out of a wasted life. God tells the people they need to remember that if they're going to demolish the false gods in their life because they need to remember how unfulfilling those gods were. And then I would encourage you to ask yourself the question, in light of that, what gods am I worshiping today? What idols, what gods have a tendency to pull my attention and my heart away from the worship of the true God? Last week we talked about the gods of success, the gods of social justice, the gods of popularity, the god of nature, the gods of ecstasy and money, ultimately all gods of our own making. Gods that we establish and we make them into the sort of god that we would love to worship and serve. In many ways, our current worship of idols in this culture, in this country today, is no different than the pagan idolatry that used to take place in Canaan or Egypt or Haran where they would fashion a god that would simply affirm everything they wanted to do. You want to have a wealthy, prosperous lifestyle? Well, invent the god of crops and fertility. You want to engage in all sorts of illicit sexual practices? We'll invent a god of sexuality. You want to engage in whatever you would like to do and engage in power and war and things like that? We'll invent a god that will endorse your doing that. We do the exact same thing today. We create these little gods in our lives and say, I can fulfill that God's role, that God's call on my life, and I'll follow that God instead. And into that reality, God calls us out. And he calls us to demolish those gods because those gods are wasting our lives. Those gods are calling us to something that will never ultimately fulfill us. What are the gods that you are worshiping in your life today? Praise the Lord, he repeatedly smashes those idols in our hearts. Amen? God saves us from wasting our lives in false worship. But again, Joshua doesn't just use the past to draw present implications. In addition, 
He calls them to obedience today. And secondly, in this next section, we learn that we smash idols in our lives by embracing that we are called to sincere service, by recognizing what our call is today. And here, in this second section, Joshua's words, his exhortation begins to bite just a little bit. Look at his appeal in verse 14. Now, therefore, in light of what you've just heard, fear the Lord and serve him with sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. If it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Here God, or Joshua, God through Joshua calls them to a sincere service of him. And I think that means we need to pause a moment and we need to consider this word service. This has been one of our key terms of the book of Joshua, and it's actually a key term throughout the entire Pentateuch in the Old Testament. This term service in the first five books of the Old Testament has already come up 94 times. It's 18 times in the book of Genesis. 32 times in Exodus, only three times in Leviticus, 11 times in Numbers, and then 30 times in the book of Deuteronomy. And here, it's used 19 times in the book of Joshua, all in these last three chapters. Remember, we said that our theme for this third section was service, was worship to God in the land, and that's the focus. The definition of this term service means to minister, to labor, or to give devotion to someone of a higher stature. And I love how Joshua lays it out in this section, how he calls them to faithfulness and to sincere service. And I think we would, or I would argue from these four verses that he describes what this sort of sincere service looks like. He describes it in three ways. He says, it is earnest, it is exclusive, and it is exemplary. First, it is earnest. I love this. He says, now therefore fear the Lord. And serve him with sincerity and in faithfulness. Sincerity is the sort of honest, straightforward action that has no pretense. Not sort of a, I'm worshiping, I'm serving because I have to, but I'm worshiping and serving because I get to. Faithfulness is firmness, it's constancy, it's consistency, it's devotion, it's discipline. And some of us like both extremes of that spectrum, do we not? Some of us like our worship to be sincere and authentic and spontaneous. Others of us are all about the discipline. And he reminds us that sincere worship is both things. It requires both a discipline and also an enthusiasm and devotion to God. But his point is that you can't serve God part-time. You can't serve God on the weekends and forget all the rest of the days. You can't serve God when it's convenient and forget about it when it's hard. That's not sincere service to God. We'll explore that a little bit more here in just a moment, because in addition to the service being in earnest, it's also exclusive. Did you pick up on that in the next section? He says, if you're going to serve God sincerely, you must put away the gods that your father served beyond the river in Egypt. This is staggering to me. They had wandered around in the desert for 40 years. They had had seven years watching God conquer the enemies in the land of Canaan. And then they had lived the next 20, 30, 40 years in the land, and they still had idols. You see that? He said, put away the gods your father served behind the river. You're still holding on to these gods. 
you're still engaged in what's known as syncretism. We are like, I want to worship and be devoted to the God, Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God of Israel, but just in case that doesn't work out, I want to hold on to these gods from Egypt. I'm going to hold on to these Canaanite gods. I want to hold on to these other gods in case Yahweh lets me down. He says, you can't do that. Because God demands exclusive worship. He doesn't allow this sort of syncretism. Worshiping the true God means rejecting all other gods. There's no backup option. His point is, you can't serve God half-hearted. You can't have half of your heart devoted to God and half of your heart devoted to other things. You can't have half of your heart devoted to God and half of your heart devoted to money. You can't have half of your heart devoted to God and half of your heart devoted to popularity, to your career, to your family, to anything else. Sincere service to God is exclusive. But lastly, he says, sincere service to God is exemplary. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He said service to God is actively choosing to worship and serve God for yourself, but it's also actively choosing to lead others in that worship. He's saying you can't serve God privately. Service and worship of God is not a private activity that you can just keep in your heart and not ever express to anyone else. That's a lie that our world would tell us, is it not? Your religion is good for you. My religion is good for me. Just don't talk to me about it or we'll have a bad Thanksgiving. Right? Two things we don't talk about in this world, right? Religion and politics. Because they end our Christmas gatherings really quick. Joshua's words for Israel here is that's not an option for believers. We can't worship God privately. We can't keep him in a corner of our hearts and never express that. He says, as for me, private choice, and my house, public choice, we both will serve the Lord. Sincere service to God is earnest, it is exclusive, and it is exemplary. And of course, not shockingly, the people of Israel totally wholeheartedly agree with Joshua. Look at verse 16. Much like us, they're enthusiastic at the start. Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods, despite the fact that they still have gods in their houses. For it is the Lord, our God, who brought us out from our father, or our fathers up from the land of Egypt, out from the house of slavery, and who did those great signs in our sight and preserves us in all the ways he went, and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. You've got to love their commitment and enthusiasm. They say, absolutely, Joshua, we're on board with this train. We won't forsake God. We'll serve the Lord sincerely and wholeheartedly. We'll address that here in just a moment when we look at the next section. But for right now, I think it's worth noting that in addition to saving his people from wasted worship, here God calls his people to embrace sincere service. God calls them to make a commitment, to make a covenant, to make a public declaration that they are with God and to forsake all others. You know, it's no coincidence that anymore today, when you join a sports team in high school or in middle school, and I know many of you are engaged in that, one of the things they often have you do up front is make a commitment to the team. Do they not? There's some sort of thing that say, I will be at practice, and I will keep my grades up, and I will do all these things. I'm committed. 
It's exactly what God is calling for here. He's saying, you have been saved from your worthless worship. Now I want you to remember your call to sincere service. And just like Israel, we are called to sincere service today as well, are we not? Which means our worship must be earnest, it must be exclusive, and it must be exemplary. Our sincere service means earnest in our obedience, not part-time. Do you struggle at all with that? Making your faith a part-time engagement? Only worshiping God on Sunday mornings and then going out and living however you want to or living for other gods? Maybe you can worship God when you're here from 8 o'clock to noon or give or take whatever time I get done with the message. But the minute that clock strikes 10.30 or whatever time it's supposed to be, I honestly don't always remember. There's another God that takes control of your life. And when you clock in at work on Monday morning, there's another God that's in control of your life. And when you are with your family, there's another God that's in control of your life. And when you are with coworkers or friends, there's another God that dictates what you do. Earnest worship of God is not part-time. It is not when it's convenient. It is not just on Sunday mornings. It is not just when something else doesn't take over. Earnest worship is an all-time, 24-7 activity. Is your worship of God earnest? Additionally, sincere service means that we are exclusive in our worship of God. We are not half-hearted. We are not embracing some sort of syncretism where we get God and we get all of the other benefits and gods of this world as well. You can't simultaneously serve God and serve the idols of this world. What are the idols? What are the gods in your life that seek to pull you away from the worship of the true God? What are those things that when you find them competing with the worship of the true God, they always win out? Is it yourself? Is it your family? Is it your career? Is it your extracurricular activities? If there is a God in your life that is constantly dominating the worship of the true God, your worship is not exemplary, it's not exclusive. The only solution to that is to repent and say, God, I was wrong. What would you have me do? Two, as the people of Israel did here, present yourself before God saying, what would you do with my life? Whatever you have for me, I will do it. Sincere service is exclusive. But lastly, and maybe most frustratingly for some of us, sincere service is exemplary. Exemplary service of God in our lifestyle must not be private. It must not be a hidden faith that we don't show to anyone else. You can't claim Christ and not call those you lead to worship Him. Let me say that again. You can't claim Christ privately and not call those you lead to worship Him and serve Him as well. This is where this starts to get a little bit biting. Where these truths work their ways into our private lives and our homes. As leaders, as parents, we're called to exemplify service to God. Here He calls them and He exemplifies it in His own home that says, for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now, he's not advocating some sort of a you can guarantee your children's salvation. But he's saying you can lead in such a way that your household is dedicated to the service of God. Are you doing that? Is that apparent? Is that public to those around you? 
Now, this moment, I think it's appropriate that while this command is relevant to all of us, it is particularly true of husbands and fathers in their households. And I say this not only because I think it's faithful to the text, but also because it's something that we haven't always been particularly good here at Faith Bible at. Men, you are called to a role of spiritual leadership and love in your home. Joshua here says, I have made the decision, and I will lead my house to make the same decision. I can't save them, but this will be a household that is dedicated to the service of God. Gentlemen, is that true in your home? Is that a reality that you are embracing? Those of you that are younger, is that something you're preparing yourself for when that day arrives? This is something that is far too easy to bypass. It is far too easy to miss this. Gentlemen, this is a call on your lives. What does your follow-through look like? Is this something you're going to say, eventually when my kids get older, someday I will start being faithful in this call? Or is this something you want to own today? There's a couple of things I want to mention to you. In 2024, we're going to be starting a couple of new groups for men here at the church. George is going to lead one. It's going to go on for about a year. He's looking for about 12 men in the church to commit to going through this with him for a year. And he's going to focus on what does spiritual leadership and love for your family look like. I wish I had been able to sit with George for a year when I was 22, 23, and newly married. If you're interested in that, contact the office. Let me know. Let one of the pastors know. We'd love to connect you with that. Because we only have room for about 12 guys. So it's a first-come, first-served thing. I also want to mention that if you find yourself thinking that you're being faithful in your home, that there's an expanding sphere of influence here as well. Because the template for the church takes its lead from the home. So over the course of the next year, in January, Pastor Mike is going to start a couple of groups focused on the character attributes of an elder. What does it mean to be an elder? What does that look like? We're not looking for people who are sure they're elders. But we're looking for people that want to be character-qualified to be elders which in many ways isn't really that impressive. It's just what a faithful Christian looks like. Pastor Mike, would you raise your hand? Where's Pastor Mike? He's in the back. Gentlemen, if that's something you're interested in, talk to him before you leave today. Shoot him an email. Let us know. What's your follow-through look like? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We smash idols by embracing the earnest, exclusive, and exemplary nature of our service to God. But once again, Joshua doesn't end his speech where we would expect him to. This would be a great place for Joshua to wrap up. But instead, he throws us a curveball by promising us total failure. In verses 19 through 28, he promises that Israel will fail at this task. And these realities are brought to the forefront by what is a disheartening debate to read between Joshua and the people of Israel. In this next section, you'll notice that Joshua offers three variations of a warning to Israel. And they respond three times with, don't worry, Joshua, we'll be obedient. He starts off by saying, hey, by the way, you can't obey. Look at verse 19. But Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. 
He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do the harm or you harm and consume you after having done you good. Well, that's leadership 101, is it not? This is what I'm calling you to. Oh, by the way, you're never going to do it. He says, you are far too disobedient to perfectly serve God. That's been proven by the last 110 years that I've lived with you people. And also because God is too jealous. I want to make a couple notes, first of all, on that theme of God's jealousy. We tend to think of jealousy in terms of a negative connotation. As humans, we get jealous inappropriately, but God's jealousy is never positioned that way in Scripture. When used of God, it's always positive. It's always the idea of God's faithfulness and his exclusive love for his people. It's used five times in the book of Deuteronomy, and they're all addressing the issue of idolatry. He says, God is a jealous God. He longs for his people, and when they go and do whatever they want, it irks him, to say the least. But his point is very clear. He says, you won't obey perfectly, but the people respond confidently, much like maybe we would. Look at verse 21. And the people said to Joshua, no, we will serve the Lord. Got to love their chutzpah, Right? So Joshua responds. He says, fine, but you're a witness against yourself. Look at verse 22. Then Joshua said to the people, you are a witness against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And of course, the people respond, and they said, we are a witness. Kind of like the idea of the witnesses at a marriage, right? Those people that stand up next to you and they sign the marriage license saying, I saw that marriage take place. Joshua says to the people, you are a witness against yourselves. If you fail in this command, you will remember this moment. And the people agree, we are a witness, which puts them precisely where Joshua wants them. So he returns to his previous point and says, then prove it. Look at verse 23. He said, then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. Because if you really mean that, then practice what you preach. Get rid of those gods that you're hiding in your household. Again, the people confidently affirm that. Look at verse 24. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord we will serve, and his voice we will obey. Now note, they don't say, and today we're going to get rid of all those idols. And they don't. People are confident in their ability to obey, but if you've read the book of Judges, you know that Joshua was right in being skeptical. Judges 2, verses 6 through 10 details that they served and followed God all the days of Joshua and all of the days of the other leaders that walked with him. But the minute those leaders died, the people went and did whatever they wanted. In fact, they did exactly what was right in their own eyes. A phrase that can be said of our culture and generation as well. But in spite of that, in spite of that failure, Joshua still affirms their commitment with another covenant in verses 25 through 28. I'm going to just read this briefly. Here Joshua gives them some additional statutes and rules, verse 25. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem, that same place between Ebal and Gerizim where they had the first covenant ceremony. He adds these to the book of the law, verse 26, and Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law. He erects another stone of testimony. He took a large stone and set it up under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. He says, this is going to be a part of the testimony, verse 27, and Joshua said to all the people, behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us, therefore it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with God. And Joshua sends the people away, every man to his inheritance. 
And for all intents and purposes, this is the end of the book of Joshua. These final four, five verses are a bit of an epilogue as it describes the burial of Joshua and some of the other leaders, and we'll cover that next week. But what's the purpose of this lengthy exchange? Why did God and Joshua choose to end the book on such a downer? You are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. Well, thanks, Joshua. I think Israel needed to be aware and told on no uncertain terms that they would ultimately fail to offer God perfectly sincere service. They needed to know that though God was calling them to obedience and to sincere service, they were ultimately not going to perfectly achieve it. No matter what they did, they would never be able to achieve God's standard of holiness and absolute loyalty. And if you read the rest of the Old Testament, you learn that's exactly true. Again and again and again, the people of Israel walk away from God and they serve other gods and they do whatever they want to do. Which means we're left with a problem. And as it happens, it's the same problem we're plagued with ever since Genesis chapter 3. How will God restore relationship with mankind? How will he make them able to offer worthy worship and sincere service to him? It's going to take something better than the best of Israel could offer. It's going to take something better than the best we could offer. Enter Christ in the gospel. Enter one who would obey perfectly, who would be fully God and fully man, and yet live in perfect obedience to God, to offer God sincere service, to be faithful in every possible way to the law, and yet be judged with the curses that the law requires, because he lived it for us. The end of Joshua 24 is in spite of all the faithfulness that God offers to his people, in spite of all the things that he's done for them, the human condition still wins out. They still find themselves worshiping other gods, worshiping themselves, doing whatever they want to do. So Matthew's gospel in the New Testament breaks the silence of 400 years and cries, one has arrived who will do that for you. One has arrived who won't fail in this task. So we as New Testament saints are saved from our worship, our wasted worship. And we are offered worthy worship. Read Romans 12, 1 and 2. Offer yourselves as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable, which is your spiritual worship. As New Testament saints, we are freed from our slavery and bondage to sin, and we are able to offer sincere worship to God through Christ. Romans 6, verses 15 through 23 says that we are no longer slaves of sin. We are now slaves to righteousness because of Christ. And ultimately, we are forgiven for our total failure, and we are given as a gift Christ's perfect righteousness. Read Romans 3, verses 21 through 26. Joshua here reminds them that they will ultimately fail to worship and serve God appropriately. And it begs for one who would come who would do that for us. Well, without Christ, we were devoting our lives to wasted worship, living as slaves to sin and promised only total failure in that task. With Christ, we have received Christ's perfect righteousness. And we can offer God worthy worship and sincere 
service. The book of Joshua begs for the king to come. It begs for the true Savior to come. And as a result, I can't help but find my heart leaning toward finishing our time together this morning in Ephesians chapter 2. Because so many of the themes that we've talked about here in Joshua 24 get echoed again in Paul's letter to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 2. Would you turn there briefly in your Bibles? We'll read this, and then I'm going to just take a moment to pray these truths for us as we wrap up our service. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul is thanking God, and then he is declaring the truths of what has taken place in the gospel. And he talks about saving people from their worthless activities, and it talks about calling people to service, and it talks about how the fact that we would fail and Christ did it for us. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his kindness or his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Paul reminds them of the exact same thing that Joshua reminds them at the end of his letter. The call to something they can never achieve, but praise the Lord, Christ did it for us. I just want to take a moment, I want to pray the truths of Ephesians 2 over us, and we'll wrap up our time together this morning. Father, we confess that each and every one of us that now knows you was at one time dead in our trespasses and sins. Father, not only were we rebelling against you, but we were loving every minute of it. We were running as fast as we could away from you. Yet you, in your goodness and mercy, your love and grace, pulled us out of our wasted worship, living our lives pursuing things that ultimately have no significance. And you moved us into your kingdom. You give us the opportunity to know you. We praise you for that reality. That we have been saved through grace. Father, that is a humbling thing. Lord, it should also motivate our obedience. Here Paul reminds us that your grace in our lives should motivate us to live in a manner worthy of our calling. To recognize that we have been created to worship you and to be obedient to you. And we need your help in that. Lord, we need your spirit and your word to refine and shape our hearts and minds. To demolish the idols and the false gods that we cling to. And to orient our hearts and our minds toward the worship of the true God. Pray that for everyone here, you would be at work in their hearts and minds over the course of this week. Make them aware of those idols that they are so quickly tempted to follow. And give them the courage to move away from those and focus on you. 
Lord, we pray that we as a people would be faithful to call the calling that we've been called to. Lord, that we would offer worship to you because of what Christ has done for us. Make us an obedient people. Make us a people that are quick to serve and worship for your glory and for the sake of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.